Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is someone who, as a young medical student, developed a life-limiting illness. The subsequent course of his life changed dramatically. Thankfully, he survived that illness and went on to learn so much about medicine, about therapeutics, and about healthcare, which he shares with me in this conversation. My guest is David Fagenbaum. You're very, very welcome to the show, David. I'm so thrilled to be speaking with you today. You're unique amongst our guests. A, you're a doctor, but more than that, you're a patient. And more than that, you're a patient who's seeking to find a cure to a rare disease that you yourself are suffering. But before we go into all of that, can you please tell me who David Fagenbaum was before all of this started? Who were you? What was your, how was your life unfolding? Where did you see the next five years of your life two days before the diagnosis? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure and an honor for for me to be with you today. Um, So the David Fagenbaum uh, before uh, my my illness was a healthy third-year medical student. I was training to become an oncologist in memory of my mom who had passed away just a few years before from brain cancer. And I was determined to get revenge against cancer, to take on cancer and treat cancer patients in memory of my mom. And I was working towards that mission. I was in my third year of med school and I I was achieving that thing that I'd been dreaming about. And um, uh, it was actually literally at the time on an OBGYN rotation. I I had just delivered the first baby uh, of my career, um, which which really felt like, you know, such a high point. And it was, and, and it is. And then really out of nowhere, I went from this incredible high to the lowest of lows in, in a matter of days. Well, first of all, I'm really sorry that your mom had this awful thing happen to her. Thank you. And a lot of our listeners are medical students, so they will very much identify with what you're saying. Delivering your first baby is a very, very special moment. So tell us exactly what happened. How did you discover that you were ill? What were your symptoms? Where were you at the time? Over the course of just a few days, I went from energetic, healthy, delivering babies to feeling more tired than I'd ever felt before. And as a medical student, you're kind of always tired, but it was a different kind of tired. It was this uh, almost unbearable fatigue. And then over the course of the next few days, I noticed some lumps and bumps appearing in my neck, uh, which uh, medically... I knew they were lymph nodes, but I didn't really want to think about why I might have enlarged lymph nodes. And so I was kind of trying to be the patient only and not the medical student, you know, doctor in training. And then I started having pretty severe night sweats. I would wake up and head to toe sweats. And I started losing my appetite and getting really severe abdominal pain, noticed fluid accumulating around my ankles. And now I should, I should mention that I was in incredible state of health before I became ill. I actually played American football here in college and continued to exercise and was really quite into my health and, and, and exercise and that sort of stuff. And, and so seeing fluid accumulating around my ankles, and I just knew something was really wrong. I took a, a medical school exam and then um, went down the hall to the emergency department where they ran some blood tests. And I'll, I'll never forget hearing this doctor say, 
David, your liver, your kidneys, your bone marrow, your heart, and your lungs are all shutting down. We have to hospitalize you right away. And it was just such a shock. I was like, wait a minute, you know, an hour ago, I was taking care of patients just down the hall. What do you mean? What do you mean? This this isn't even possible. So they hospitalized me and, and I just deteriorated rapidly. I had a retinal hemorrhage that made me temporarily blind in my left eye. I ended up gaining about 70 pounds of fluid because my liver and my kidneys had stopped functioning. And so fluid just everywhere. I was basically in and out of consciousness for weeks at a time and all with no diagnosis. It was 11 weeks of misery and pain and uh, really devastation. I think I, I was devastated emotionally about what I was going through, but also just physically. My, my body was, was really um, decimated by, by my immune system. And so my immune system, which is supposed to protect you and supposed to be this barrier, actually was now attacking all of my vital organs, and we had no idea why. What do you think it was like for the doctors who were having to make a diagnosis for you? I mean, here you were a football star, a medical student at the prime of his life, suffering from symptoms that they couldn't seem to get to grips with. Yeah, it was interesting position to be in because a lot of people were thinking about me and no one could figure out what was going on. I even, at one stage, I remember my dad got the phone number of a doctor at the NIH and he was uh, every day calling this doctor and giving the doctor results and lab test. He would talk to this doctor for like 30 or 45 minutes every day for weeks. And I remember when I eventually got out, I mean, I'm on the podcast right now, so you know I I survived or I, I have survived up until this point. And so um, I remember I, I turned to my dad and said, Dad, who was this doctor at the NIH that you were calling every day? I mean, of course, there were literally dozens of doctors in the room every day, but but who is this one doctor who you called every day? And he said, oh, I don't know. This, this guy at the NIH, I think his name's Fucci. And I said, Fucci? Gee, who, who's he said? Go, he said Google him, Fucci, NIH. And so I Googled. It, it was Tony Fauci, my dad. He, and here in the states, um, Dr. Tony Fauci has really been leading our, our, our COVID nineteen effort. But of course, before my dad ever spoke to him, before my dad just called him Fucci every day, he had already won a Presidential Medal of Freedom for his HIV work. I mean, he already was one of the most eminent scientists and physicians in the world. And my dad was just calling him every day and telling him my lab tests for you know, 30, 45 minutes a day. And, and unfortunately, despite Dr. Tony Fauci's thinking about my case, even Dr. Fauci, I mean, no, no one knew what was going on. Some doctors thought that um, maybe I had lymphoma. I, I, I seemed most consistent with a patient with a very aggressive lymphoma, which is a form of cancer. Other doctors thought maybe I had a, an atypical autoimmune condition, maybe a really severe um, autoimmune disease like lupus. Other doctors said, well, maybe there's some sort of viral infection, maybe like, I mean, like SARS-CoV-2, obviously. This is before um, SARS-CoV-2, um, but maybe there's some virus. And, and so we tested for all the viruses. We tested for all the autoimmune diseases. We tested for all the cancers and nothing was coming back. And literally it was 11 weeks before the diagnosis was made. What were your thoughts at this time? There you were, a medical student, uh, having stumped all of these great and good people who until recently were your tutors and now were struggling to make a diagnosis. What was going through your mind at that time? I think for me, um, the biggest feeling I had was 
and it's hard for me to put it exactly into a word, but I was disappointed that the medical system didn't have an answer for me. You know, I had been a part of this effort from undergrad through grad school and now medical school to be a part of trying to find solutions to problems and feeling like, for the most part, we can figure out what's going on. And then actually even better, not only can we figure out what's going wrong, oftentimes we have drugs that can, you know, fix the problem. And I I was so psychologically devastated that, you know, that here I am literally actively dying in the ICU for weeks at a time and no one can figure it out. That just didn't make sense. You know, how could we not figure out what's going on here? So it was it was really, really maybe disappointing is is, is and not in any one person, but more just in medicine in general. And it was a really important realization for me that has stuck with me ever since. And that's that in medical school, we teach what we know. We talk about this causes this, but we you can't teach things you don't know. So like the, the, the many diseases where we don't know what causes them or we don't know how to treat them, there isn't a multiple choice answer that's just no one knows. I mean, I think a lot of medical students would love if that was one of the options, you know, no one knows, but that's not actually one of the options. It's always things we know. And so, so I think as a medical community, as a society, we're much more familiar with what we know, but there are a lot of diseases. In fact, there are 7,000 rare diseases. And of those, only 5% have an approved therapy. 95% of these 7,000 rare diseases don't have a single drug approved for them. So this is the realm that I was now entering into. And even as a medical student, I had no appreciation for just how scary and how huge of a problem this was. That is a difficult place, particularly failing to make a diagnosis in a young person with a life-limiting illness is a very challenging thing for any medical team. But how do you cope with this situation? How did you manage to live through the following months and years? I think that um, there were a few things, and I've spent a lot of time reflecting on this. As you know, I wrote a book, Chasing My Cure, about this journey. And in the process of doing that, I had to put my mind onto these exact questions that, frankly, I had put out of my mind because I didn't want to think about them. But I forced myself to go back to the hospital, go back to when you were drifting in and out of consciousness, and what were you going through? So I'd say fortunately and unfortunately, I've actually thought about this quite a bit where I was and, and, and how I think I got through, I, I would pin it on four things. The first is that I had the most incredibly supportive family and friends by my side. So um, as I got more and more sick, as the doctors told my family I wasn't likely to survive, more and more extended family members came to visit me, more and more close friends came to visit me. And, and I really do believe that the physical presence of those people, and not even just those that are physically present, but but knowing the amount of people that were quote unquote, there for me and that really were were literally there for me. I think that was one really critical component. Another critical component was a vision for what I wanted in the future. I wanted to get out of that hospital. I wanted to survive. I wanted to one day fight cancer as a scientist. I, I, had, I, I was on this career where I had work to do. I had revenge to exact on cancer. I, I couldn't end my journey now because I had things to do. And on top of that, I dreamed of one day getting married, one day having children. So this kind of vision for the future was really, really important for me. But at the same time, I was very focused on day-to-day. -day. So even though there was this vision for what I wanted in the long term, I was very focused on what was happening to me today. If someone had told me on day one, David, you were going to suffer in this hospital bed for six months. And right when you think you're feeling better, you're going to get sick again and you're going to suffer for months. And then you're going to, 
I think that that would have been overwhelming. I think that all I could say is like, I've, I'm going to, I'm going to fight for today and then tomorrow I'm going to fight for the next day. And then the next day I'm going to fight for the next day. And then I think the fourth thing that I would put into this for what helped me to, to get through what was, you know, w- one of the most challenging experiences of my life is that I learned a lot from my mom in the course of her battle with cancer. She, she battled cancer for about 15 months before passing away when I was in college and watching the way that she faced challenges, the way that she faced the good, the bad, it almost gave me like, I mean, first stuff someone to emulate for sure, because she really was my role model, but also a, a bit of like a roadmap on, you know, I, I saw the way that she handled illness with such grace. And, and so for me, it was having support, having a vision for the future, focusing on today, and then just having my mom's memory so close to me and thinking, you know, what did my mom do when she was here? What would she do if she was with me right now? That was a great way to frame the issue. But did you think to yourself academically, there must be something in the fine print of textbooks that I've missed. Surely there must be an answer somewhere in these books that tells me what's wrong with me. <laughs> you would think so, because I'm a very um, academically curious sort of scientific thinker. I love to pursue unanswered questions. I-, I love the process of science. But I have to admit, when I was the patient, I was a lot less patient <laughs> with figuring out what the solution was. I um, I wish I could tell you that I was, um, I was, you know, thinking about it curiously as an academic. But I I wanted answers, <laughs> and um, and and I I wanted them fast. Well, that makes me feel better because when we're sick, we want someone to do the magic for us. But in the end, somebody did make the diagnosis. Who was that? That's right. So um, 11 weeks in, they finally did a lymph node biopsy. Um, It was actually something that my dad and I had really been calling for for weeks because we were concerned that I had lymphoma. We were we didn't want the lymph node biopsy because of what it actually ended up being, but we, we thought it was lymphoma. So we said, we got to get a lymph node. We got to see, do I have lymphoma? The biopsy was done. I did not, in fact, have lymphoma. I do not have lymphoma, but I was diagnosed with a rare condition called idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, which is a rare immune system disorder where basically the immune system gets hyperactivated and then starts to attack your vital organs for an unknown cause. So idiopathic means we don't know the cause, um, and it's never good to have a disease that has the term idiopathic in it. But importantly, with a diagnosis can then come treatment. Um, but I should mention that right around the time that the diagnosis was made, it's 11 weeks in, I was so sick that my doctors told my family I wasn't likely to survive. And a priest came in and administered my last rites to me because everyone was certain that I wasn't going to make it. Um, but thankfully, with that diagnosis and with an understanding of what I was up against, I was started on, on a single form of chemotherapy, a single agent. And thankfully, that drug turned things around enough for me to get out of the hospital about four weeks later. So it's another four weeks from treatment to finally being well enough to leave the hospital. I mean, unfortunately, it didn't turn out to be a long-term therapy because about a month later, I was back in the hospital. But that drug came just in time to save my life. And like I said, it wasn't the forever drug, but it was the life-saving drug that I needed. But like I said, unfortunately, I went on to have a number of relapses. And the next relapse I actually needed a combination of seven different chemotherapies to to finally get my disease into remission. This has been a long journey, David. You've had lots of time in clinics, had biopsies, tests. 
What have you learned about medicine? In addition to what you already knew about medicine as a medical student, uh, you've learned so much since you've got sick. Uh, and what a difficult way to learn things that are only in the fine print of medical textbooks. So what did you learn about medicine that you can now share with us? So I learned a lot about medicine. I think that one of the things that I mentioned earlier is just around the fact that actually for a lot of diseases, we don't know how they work and we don't have treatments for them. That is something I think conceptually that we're all aware of, but I don't think we realize how big of a problem that is. I mentioned earlier 7,000 diseases. That actually accounts for about one in 10 people in the United States and Australia and the world. One in 10 people have a rare disease. So each one, by definition, is rare, but collectively, it's a huge number of patients. And, and we're talking about the vast majority not having treatments. So I didn't realize the burden, the, the huge burden. I think that I also really didn't fully appreciate how critical every member of the healthcare team is. I think that as a medical student, I had a very you know doctor-focused, I guess, perspective or bias. And I didn't appreciate and realize, and I feel embarrassed saying that now that I've been a patient and I've realized how incorrect that was, but I really didn't appreciate that, that, that there are so many other people that are part of what makes healthcare work and that it really is a team game. And that, in fact, the doctor probably spends the least amount of time in the room of everyone. And, and it's really this, this really incredible team effort. Are there any particular doctors or nurses or allied health professionals that you particularly remember in the course of your illness? Yeah, so the, well, I mean, there, there are many, but one of the first that sticks out for me is a, a nurse at the University of Arkansas named Norm. First off, Norm is, is one of the most incredible nurses that, that I've ever had. His understanding of the science and the medicine and, and patient care is just really unmatched. But one of the things that really stands out for me with Norm that, that, I, that makes me smile a bit is one of the times that I was relapsing, I, uh, I knew my hair was going to come out from the chemotherapy because I got a combination of seven different chemotherapy drugs. And I remember when I learned that my hair was going to fall out, I, at this stage, I really decided that I was going to start fighting back against Castleman disease. I was no longer just going to be the victim. I was going to start doing research. I, I hadn't done anything at this stage, but I knew I wanted to do it. And one of the first things I did was ask Norm to buzz my head. And it may seem totally trivial and not important at all, but it actually was a, a kind of a philosophical and a really critical turning point where I said, I don't want to lose my hair because Castleman's is going to make me lose my hair because chemo is going to make it fall out. I'm going to buzz my hair because I want to buzz my hair. And, and Norm, I want you to be the one who buzzes my hair. And so again, it doesn't seem that important, but that's the kind of patient-nurse bond that we were able to develop even in that short of a period of time where like, this was my first fight against Castleman's. It was a guy was going to buzz my, my head while I was in the hospital and, and he was the person to do it. And so I think that's just like an interesting anecdote or at least helps to show that being a nurse or being a doctor isn't just about administering drugs and it's not just about you know deciding how to treat someone. It's about being with them on their journey. And for me, that, that day was, you know, I wanted to buzz my head. Your book about the experience is called Chasing My Cure. Why Chasing My Cure? What's the significance of that name? I would say that 
a couple of reasons. The first is, and we haven't talked about this yet, but on, on my fourth deadly relapse, that's when I promised my dad and my sisters and my girlfriend at the time, Caitlin, that I would dedicate my life to chasing after a cure for Castleman disease. And I, and I knew that it was very unlikely that I would make enough progress to actually cure Castleman disease. But I knew that I could chase after it. And so, you know, chasing my cure within it communicates that I'm chasing after a cure, but it doesn't mean like it's not catching my cure or, you know, I'm going to catch this cure. It, it's chasing. And it's that I knew that the fight was going to be long and hard. And I knew that the, the chase was unlikely to be fruitful. I, I mean, frankly, objectively, the most likely outcome from me chasing after my cure for Castleman disease was that I wouldn't be here on this podcast with you right now, and I would have passed away many years ago. That was the most likely outcome, and that was what I was prepared for, but I still wanted to chase after it. And the reason I hesitated at the beginning when you asked this question is that the book is called Chasing My Cure, but what I really wish it was called is Chasing Our Cures, because as you've heard already, it wasn't just me chasing my cure. I mean, from day one, it was my dad, my sisters, Caitlin, my friends, all these doctors. I mean, it's from day one, it's been a team. And so I think that that's, that's the one thing I would change. It would be, and it wouldn't just be chasing our cure because actually not only have we built a team that ended up helping to identify a drug that's saving my life, but we actually have redirected that work to a number of other patients' diseases. And so it's really our cures these days. So where are we, David, in terms of finding the cure for Castleman's disease? Are we close? Is there an end in sight? Is there some hope that others will be spared in the future? Yeah, so after my fourth deadly relapse was when I decided I would start fighting back and I started conducting laboratory research into Castleman disease. I started a foundation called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network and we were making really exciting progress when about a year later I relapsed and nearly died for the fifth time. So I ended up back in the hospital for over a month, multi-organ failure. Doctors didn't think I would survive again, but thankfully I survived with a combination of seven chemotherapies. And this time, kind of thinking back to your first question about how did you get through, well, at this stage, I had just gotten engaged to Caitlin. And so now I had like the ultimate date in mind. If I could just make it five more months to our wedding date, you know, we could get married. And I had this dream that, you know, maybe, frankly, I didn't know how much longer I would get past our wedding day, but, you know, wedding date was enough of a dream. And of course, the the dream within that dream would be to one day have a family with Caitlin and, and, and to be a father. But, but for me, it was, okay, I've got this thing in front of me. What can I do to get closer to that? And I knew the only way I would make it to our wedding day is if I found a drug that already existed that I could repurpose to treat my disease. So as, as you're likely well aware, there's somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 drugs that are approved for something. Just because they're approved for one disease doesn't mean that they will or won't work for another disease. They just maybe haven't been tested yet. And so my, my, my plan, literally my, my only option to make it to our wedding date was to say, I need to find something wrong in my immune system that I could then try a drug that already exists to fix it. So I'm going to go through all of my data. I'm going to start running 
experiments on my samples in the lab to see if I can find something that's wrong with my immune system and then hopefully find something that can then fix it. And so what I found in Castleman's is a disease of an overactive immune system. The easiest way to think about it is that when you hear about patients who are really sick with COVID-19 that are in the ICU, their immune system is going out of control trying to kill the virus. That's almost identical to what happens in my case, but there is no virus. So imagine the immune system is going out of control to try to do something. I don't know what, but but it's just it's destroying uh, your your vital organs. And so what I found from my laboratory research and what I honed in on was I found that there was increased activation or activity of one particular communication line within my immune system. So you have trillions of immune cells throughout your body that communicate through a series of messages and and, and communication lines. One of them is called the mTOR pathway, M-T-O-R. And mTOR is really key for immune cells to, to communicate with one another, also for immune cells to coordinate their attack. And in my tissue, I, I have this this slide that is kind of the experimental slide that saved my life. And that's where I ran an experiment. And I, and I found that there was just incredibly increased activation of this one communication line. Basically, you're, you can almost think about it as your, your on switch was stuck in the on position for your immune system when it should be able to go on and off. So it was really activated. Of course, that didn't guarantee that inhibiting it would, would work. But the good news is there are a number of inhibitors of that particular communication line. One drug is called serolimus. It's been around for 30 years. And it had never been used before for Castleman's, but I was out of options. And so um, I showed the data to a couple of my doctors and said, you know, what do you think? Am I seeing things? Like, is this just my imagination or is this really a path forward? And, and they said, you're not seeing anything that looks, looks promising, but, but of course there's no guarantees, right? But without options, let's give it a shot. And so I started taking this drug, Serolimus, as the first patient ever. And today uh, marks about six years, six and three quarter years that I've been in remission, closing in, I was about to say almost seven years, but I, I try my hardest to never say things like that because I know that I can't round up. I don't know if I'm going to make it to seven years. So maybe I'll say I'm well past six and a half years, but I won't say I'm almost seven years um, because I'm thankful to be well past six and a half years. Um, but I know that I, I know that I have no guarantees for the future. One of your aspirations for the future is now a reality. I understand that you're a dad now. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Two and a half years ago, we had we had a daughter, Amelia, which was just so we made it to our wedding day. We made it to May 24, 2014, August 18th, uh, 2018. Our, we had our daughter, Amelia. So yeah, I'm, I'm a very, very fortunate person. So now as you're thinking ahead, how far ahead do you allow yourself to think about the future? So when I first became ill, I thought one day ahead, <laughs> you know, what, what am I doing today? What can I do tomorrow? Um, when I first got out of the hospital after those six months, um, I started thinking in three week increments. And the reason for that is that I was started on, exp- on an experimental drug called siltuximab that you get infused every three weeks. And I, I believed and I hoped and I trusted that, you know, this drug was going to work for me. If I could just focus on, er- on my next infusion. Okay, I'm going to get to my next infusion. All right, now my next infusion. And unfortunately, that drug didn't work for me. And I relapsed on that experimental drug, the only drug that was being studied at the time, which is why I decided I would dedicate my life towards doing research. Um, But when I relapsed on that drug, I realized that even three weeks in advance was, was too long. And I really became you know, very much, even more short-term than, than I was. And then I relapsed again, and I became even more short-term. Um, 
And I really lived, and I know it's like a, a cliche, you know, you know, live every day like it's your last. And 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 actually, I, rather than that cliche, I, I prefer to use the analogy of overtime. And um, so overtime, uh, as you know well from from your football and my football, is time that you didn't think you'd have. Time where every second counts. You can you can make a mistake in the first half of the game, and you can make up for it. But in overtime, every second counts. And so so I live with this real urgency of feeling like I'm in overtime, where I don't know how much time I'm going to have, but I'm going to make the most of every second. Now you mentioned my daughter, and of course Amelia's birth two and a half years ago really changed the way that I look at time. You know, whereas I was very much kind of I'm in overtime every day. Is you know could be my last. You know, having a daughter just gives me the the dream and the hope that I can be here with her for a long time in ways that I never did before. So, so I still live like I'm in overtime, and I still fight, and you know, to to make as much progress as I can. Because you asked about where we are with a cure, this drug is working really well for me. It's been over six and a half years, but but I don't know how long it will work for me, and it's worked for some other patients as well, which has been amazing to see that the science that, that, that I've, I've been able to be a part of has helped other people, um, but it hasn't worked, helped everyone. And there still is a lot of unmet need within Castleman disease. So that's what I do is I focus my, my time, my effort, my energy on searching for new treatments and maybe a cure for Castleman's. Where can people find you, David? Where can they read about your cause? And where can they get a copy of your book? Sure. So anyone can go to chasingmycure.com to learn about the work that we're doing for Castleman disease, for drug repurposing, this idea of finding new uses for existing drugs. And also for COVID-19, we've gotten very involved in the COVID-19 fight. Uh, I, I know that Chasing My Cure is available worldwide in bookstores. It's, it's mostly in English-speaking countries, but it's also in, in other countries around the world. I wrote this book because I learned so much about life from, from each of the five times that I almost died, a lot about resilience and fighting back and lessons that I, I wish I didn't have to almost die five times to learn, but lessons that feel so relevant right now where I think all of us feel like we've been knocked down and we have to you know pick ourselves back up because of COVID. And, we're, and many of us are still on the ground. And, and in fact, many, you know, so many people around this world are, are still knocked over from what, what COVID has done. And, and so while I wish that this was a book that was only relevant for my story, unfortunately, it's become a book and a story that I think is particularly relevant right now in the midst of COVID. But how do you a, how do you chase after a cure for a disease that's devastating? But but more importantly, and more broadly important, is how do you get back up after you've been knocked down? And, and what are some tools and tricks you know, to keep fighting in the midst of really, really tough times? David Fagenbaum, I'm sure your mother would be very proud of all that you've achieved since you've become ill. Amelia is very lucky to have you as a dad. And a shout out to Norm for bringing you comfort at a difficult point in your illness, because after all, that's what medicine is all about. Thank you so much. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>